Welcome to Jacob and His Children, A Journey Through Genesis, a continuation of Rabbi Silver's uh, Shear, not Parshashir, um, Bereshit Shear that's been going on for the past couple of months. If you're joining on Facebook, welcome. Uh, please feel welcome to ask questions in the chat. If you're joining us on Zoom, also feel welcome to ask questions in the chat. If you have a Tanakh of your own, you're welcome. Please feel welcome to keep it open to Genesis, to gen the end of Genesis 40. Otherwise, we'll be sharing Pesukim from Sfaria on the screen. You can follow along that way. Um, if you're joining on Zoom, just one small matter of housekeeping. Please mute yourself if you're not directly asking a question. Otherwise, we get audio feedback and distortion and weird, art weird artifacts. I am sending around panelists invitations. Under that, Rabbi Silver, I believe the floor well, is thank yours. Thank you very much. Okay, so we're up to the end of chapter 40. Uh, we have Joseph finds himself in jail. And he has interpreted the dreams of these two officers of Pharaoh, Sarah Mashkim and Sarah Ophim. Uh, he has given the Sarah Mashkim a favorable interpretation. Essentially, you'll be restored to your post. And when the Sarah Ophim hears this favorable interpretation, he at that point says, Why don't you tell me? Uh, I'll tell you my dream. You can interpret that as well. And of course, his dream has a, a negative interpretation, namely that at this three days later, Paro's birthday party, he restores the Sarah Mashkim and he will execute the Sarah Ophim. That's what Joseph essentially says to them. And that's what happens at the end of chapter, at the end of chapter 40. Um, when Joseph, after Joseph interprets the dream of the butler, the Sarah Mashkim, and that's found back in chapter 40 in verses, um, the interpretation begins in verse number 12. He interpret 12 and verse 13. He says, you're gonna be restored to, to your former post. And then he says in verse number 14, so he says, this does not seem to be a, an interpretation of the dream. This seems to be separate from that. A request from the Sarah Mashkim, namely, that since you will be restored to your posts and it'll be good for you. So when, it, when, it, when in fact this interpretation is proven to be true, uh, I ask you please to remember me and to, to Paro. Remember me when it's good for you and do and be kind to me. Mention me the paro, his kaitani. Get me out of this place. And then he asks, For I was stolen from the land of the Hebrews. That was Joseph's request of the Saramash. Came at the end of the chapter after in fact what Joseph predicted comes true. But the last verse of chapter 40 is The cupbearer, Sarah Mashkim, did not think of Joseph, he forgot him. It's hard to imagine why he didn't think of Joseph or didn't remember him. You're talking about three days later. You're not talking about something that happened many years ago, but nonetheless, he doesn't remember Joseph, he forgets him. I just wanted to repeat uh, 
what I may have mentioned last week, I mentioned certainly in the past, I think it's a very important point. And that is that later, and we're gonna go through Paro's dreams, but after Paro has his dreams, and he tells his dreams, we are told, this is in chapter 41 already, he tells his dreams to his Khartoumin and Chachamim. Khartoumim, they usually translate as magicians. Um, Chachamim, we know, the wise men. But it says, poter otam none could interpret them for Pharaoh. So no, nobody is giving an interpretation, or at least an interpretation that Paro was happy with. Uh, Rashi interprets a poter otam lifaro. The lifaro for Rashi is not to Paro, but rather none could interpret in a way that was for Paro. That is to say, none could interpret the dream in a way that's beneficial to Paro. I'll come back to that. But in any event, be that as it may, um, so nobody is able to interpret Paro's dreams, not his wise men, not his chartumim, not his chachamim. It's at that point that the Sarah Mashkim speaks up. He didn't speak up three days afterwards, but now he speaks up. So let's take a look briefly at that verse. It's Pasuk 10, verse number nine. He begins to speak. By Yedaber Sarah Mashkim et Paro Emar, et Chato'ai Ani Maskir He says to Paro, I am mentioning a maskir. I mentioned, I will make mention of my sin today. Up to this point, he didn't mention the sin. He doesn't want to talk, tell Paro that he was in jail. Obviously, he was in jail, but why harp on that? So three days later, he doesn't mention anything about Joseph. He's happy to have his job back. Forgets Joseph. But now, suddenly, two years later, a full two years later, suddenly, he's mentioning the sin. And now he explains. It's Paro he says, Paro got angry against his servants. It sounds like in general. He was angry. Something was not proper. The servants were made were not in Paro's good graces. He got angry. And he placed himself, the Sarah Mashkim, and the Sarah Ophim, the chief baker, uh, he placed them in jail. You put me in, in Mishmar, in the holding pen of the Sarah Tabachim, together with Sarah Ophim. And now he tells the story. And on one night, same night, both of us had dreams. Each one had a different interpretation, presumably. <clears throat> and there was with us a Hebrew slave, slave to the Saratabachim, the chief butcher. And we told him our dream. And he interpreted our dreams for us. And he gave an appropriate interpretation for each dream, two different interpretations. And what he said came true. I was I, he, Pharaoh, third person, uh, restored me to my post. And he, the other guy, the chief baker, he was, he was hanged. So this is when 
This is when the Sarah Mashkim remembers. It's two years later, three days later, he forgets. Two years later, he remembers. So I'll make a couple of points about this. The first point is that he remembers at a time when it serves his purposes to remember. And it serves his purposes in chapter 41, because in chapter 41, Paro wants help. He's consulted all the magicians and all the wise men. Nobody can satisfy Paro. Nobody can help Paro. And the Sarah Mashdim sees an opportunity to, you know, to strengthen his bond with Paro by telling him of somebody who can help him. Your wise man can help you, but I happen to remember now. So he remembers when it suits him to remember. That's the important point over here. I'll, I'll pick up with this point later. He remembers when it's in his own, for his own benefit. It benefits him to remember. It didn't benefit him two years ago when uh, Joseph was in jail and interpreted the dreams. What profit is there in mentioning Joseph to Paro? I mean, what does he benefit from that? Nothing. It's the right thing to do, but he doesn't care. But now there actually is a benefit because he's the one that's going to help Paro out. And the magicians can't and the wise men can't. But the Saramashkin can. That's one point. We'll come back to this point again. It's a very central point. Um, that's point number one. Uh, the uh, let me just pick up with this point. Now, this one, this that this particular point about. Um, about remember about well, 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 make a different point. The second point I wanted to make was that you see when he speaks, you see the extent to which the fact that the other guy was hanged is significant. The Sarah Mashim could have said, I had a dream two years ago, or whatever it was, and there was some fellow with us in jail, young guy, slave, and uh, he interpreted my dream and it was 100% correct. But he actually doesn't say just that. He actually mentions the situation of the Sarah Ophim, of the chief, the chief baker. And the, that had an impact on him. I, I said last week that Joseph's interpretation of the baker is much more significant than the interpretation of the butler. Because the interpretation of the butler, he doesn't lose anything if he's wrong. Let's say he's wrong in power. Powell executes the, but, the the butler. Okay, so he's dead. So, but but if, but if he spares the baker, and the baker, and this is important, the baker. These are people of, of important positions in the government. Not just the baker. He's the Sarah Ophim. He's the Sarah Mashkin. He's the Sarah Tabachim. These are very. I'll come back to this point about the Sarah Ophim in particular. He's the person in charge of the lechem. And one might say in charge of the economy. He's in charge of the lechem is the key, uh, the, the, the key, the key product in the whole story of Joseph is going to be lechem. So Paro was forced to execute the person in charge of the lechem. That means that Paro doesn't have control of the lechem. That's a critical point. I'll get to that. But my point about Joseph, about the butler is what impresses him is that Joseph gave two different interpretations. And the interpretation of the baker is much more significant because the baker is taking a risk when he says the baker is going to be killed. Because if the baker is restored and not killed, 
then you have a moral enemy very high up in the in the in the in the government. So so, so the uh, the fact that Joseph was able to give two different interpretations to two different people, even though they had similar dreams on the same night, that also will be important because with Joseph's interpretation of Paro's dream will deal with the issue. Are we talking about one dream or two dreams? That's a very central issue, which we'll come to shortly. Uh, I did want to mention that the idea of not having a memory, that the, there's no memory. Memory means that you take into account a context. You take into account the past. The Mitzrayim is not a place of memory. Mitzrayim is, in the words of the Torah, you see it and you take it. That's the first experience with Paro and Mitzrayim back in chapter 12 in Rechufa. When they see you, they will kill me and take you. And when Joseph speaks to Mrs. Potiphar in chapter 39, when she propositions him, and his point is, how could I do this? Your husband's been so good to me. He's, 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 he's supported me. He trusts me. But those, those concepts don't, don't factor in because she sees Joseph. That is to say, she sees him at this moment. And the past to her is quite irrelevant. It's what you want at this moment. So that's Mitzrayim. And of course, the one who understood this perfectly is the person that wrote Megillah Esther. Because Megillah Esther, this point is very central. The king, Achashverosh, he has a very selective memory. <coughs> Mordechai saves his life. Mordechai informed uh, the king through Esther that there were two people out there, Bigaton and Teresh, <coughs> who were out to assassinate the king. They point out that big ton and terish probably means wine and bread. It's similar to the Sarah Mashkim and the Sarah Ophi, but there they, 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 the two of them are on the same side. In any event, after, after Mordechai tells Esther about the plot and Esther tells the king, and it turns out it's true, and they are hanged, and it's written down in the book of records. That's what it says in the Megillah. The king has a record book. And it's in that record book, it says that Mordechai saved his life. But there's no reference to Mordechai saving his life until you get to chapter six of the Megillah. Chapter six of the Megillah, that's after Esther has invited twice, invited the king and Haman to dine with her. And Haman's response is his ego, which is quite large to begin with is further propped up. That's chapter five. To the degree that he can't even go to the meal if Mordechai is still alive. He must execute Mordechai immediately. Because after all, how can he insult somebody as important as me? That's what Haman is thinking. That's his thing. That's his response to the double invitation. And chapter six begins and Achashverus' response is he can't sleep. Something's bothering him. So what does he do? He doesn't like this idea that this other fellow is invited with the queen twice. There's only one king. He's not the king. Why is he invited twice with me? And by the queen, no less. So what does he do? He can't sleep. He's very agitated. And he commands that they bring before him the Sefer HaZichron note, the book of memory. Suddenly, he has a memory. Suddenly, he finds that Mordechai saved his life. It was written in the book the whole time. But that's a book that no one he'll never pick up because it's a book of IOUs. That's the last thing he wants. 
But now, when something bothers him, he's bothered by it, and suddenly he discovers that Mordechai saves his life. And of course, if we presume that he knows that Haman is the enemy of Mordechai, then it all it all it all makes sense for Rachashverosh that Haman's up to no good, and that you know there's something afoot over here, and he's determined to get rid of, of Haman. But my point is that the Megillah, which plays off the Joseph story in many, many ways, this is one of the key ways. It's about memory. And it's not an accident that the, the way the Megillah ends, it tells the story, and then it says, Hayamim nizkarim v'nasim v'chodar v'adar. That this, this holiday of Purim is remembered. Nizkarim v'nasim. These days are remembered and performed in every generation. And the memory of what happened will never depart from their from their ancestors, from their from their progeny. So the point is, the Megillah makes the point that memory is a, I would say, a moral obligation. It's not just intellectual, you remember. But to remember things means to make judgments in light of in light of the past, not just to judge at the spur of the moment. Achashverosh is one, of course, because he's completely self-serving. Whatever works for him at that moment, there's no such thing as history, as loyalty, and that stuff doesn't exist for him. Whatever works today, it doesn't matter who it is. It could be Haman, it could be Esther. The person's you know, identity, morals, is completely and totally irrelevant. It's just about what works for me today. And if tomorrow, if, Someone else works better tomorrow, fine. That's the Megillah. But the Megillah ends with the obligation of the Jewish people to, to, to remember. These days of Purim on Nizkarim v'Nasim v'Zichram v'Yosuf Mizaram, that's a very central idea. And in thinking about the centrality of, of course, the Megillah of memory, we are reminded once again, and we'll come back to this, that memory in the Joseph story is not confined memory or lack of memory is not confined to the Saramashkin, partly, because this idea of memory is central to Joseph. He will name his first son forgetfulness, Menashe. God has enabled me to forget my father's house and my suffering. So we'll see that within the Joseph story, memory plays a very central role. And of course, the things we remember typically are things that really matter to us. It doesn't matter so much and we tend not to remember. We can't remember everything. So we have sort of all of us selective memories. But the Sarah Mashkim, he has no memory except when it serves his own purposes. And actually, in thinking about this, there's actually a wonderful play on words in, 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 in this verse. Wonderful play on words. Because what did Joseph say to the Sarah Mashkim? He says, you're going to get out in three days. And he says to the Sarah Mashkim, Please remember me unto Pharaoh when it goes well for you. And clearly when you read that verse in chapter 40, what it means is when it goes well for you, when you get out of jail, you're going to be restored to your post. So it's very good for you. And when you, when you hear the good news, namely, you're restored to your post, at that point, and you'll be so pleased and you'll be so happy that with my prediction, um, so at that point, it would be appropriate to, to remember me and to mention me into Paro. Mentioning and remembering is the same word. The Hazkir is to mention, Luzkor is to remember. 
But of course, ironically, when does the Sahamashim tell Paro? When it's good for him. In other words, when it's good for him, that is to say, when telling is a benefit. In his telling in the first story is no benefit for him. What, what, does he, what does he care? He doesn't benefit by telling Paro. But in the second instance, the Kashei is quite literal. It does benefit him. He's, he's the great savior. He's the great hero. He's the one who gave Paro the advice about how he can find somebody to interpret his dreams. I just wanted to repeat that point. Um, and I want to mention one other point, and I'll stop and take comments or questions. And that is that when the Sar Hamashim speaks to Paro, first Paro addresses the Khartoumim and the Chachamim, they can't answer, they can't interpret. And then the Sar Hamashim speaks up and he says, uh, he says, I remember my sin, he says, Basham Itano, and there with us in jail was Nar Evid Narivri. It was a Hebrew, a young man, a Hebrew, Evid Gusaratabochim a servant to the Saratabachim. And I wanted to make the point here that actually when the Saramashim speaks to Paro, if he had only that verse, there's absolutely no sense, at least I don't detect, that the Saramashim thinks that Joseph is in jail because Joseph did something wrong. That's not the, that's not the inference we draw from this verse. It sounds to me very different that the Saramashim assigned this fellow to us when we were in jail. Basham Itano, we were both in jail and the Saramashim simply assigned one of his servants to, to, to take care of us. And when you think about that, it's actually true. Because the Chumash said earlier, if you recall, that Joseph is in jail and finds favor with the chief jailer, with the Sar Beit HaSoar. When these two important people from the government get into the jail, then it says, that the Saratabachim assigned Joseph to these two important officers of Pharaoh's uh, court, the chief baker and chief butler. And there's no sense whatsoever here that, and, and it actually rings true in the sense, maybe that explains why the Saratabachim didn't just simply do away with Joseph. He doesn't do away with him because Joseph serves a very good purpose. He's the one that will be assigned to these very important people. And his assignment with the Sarah Mashkim and the Sarah Ophim is identical to the assignment that Joseph finds himself uh, performing, carrying out in the beginning of chapter 39 with the Sarah Tabachim. It's exactly the same language. It's all the same. So it's interesting. And actually, it, it sort of, in a way sort of strengthens the, the, the thought, which I think is good to begin with, that the reason Sarah Tabachim has a use for Joseph, he's an extremely valuable person. And you got to use him for the right job. When you have two big shots come to the jail, that's when he assigns Joseph to these two dignitaries in jail. Okay, that was the first point I wanted to make. We're going to start with Pharaoh's dreams in a moment. Before I do that, is, are there anybody have any questions or comments here? Uh, I just want to just highlight some stuff from the chat that came up um, from Neva Goldstein um, talking about, I uh, Neva, step in if I'm misquoting you, but in the context of the um, butler talking to Paro. In fact, it could be a deficit for him to remind Paro of his having jailed him. 
That's yeah. true. It could be. That, that's why he doesn't mention in the first place. But the deficit is 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 outweighed by the by the positive. This guy wants help. Yeah. No. disturbed, and now the butler has a chance to be his helper. The wise men, the people whose whose job it is to give advice, they can't they can't for whatever reason they can't give Paro a solution that he likes. In Poter Otam with Faro, Rashi makes the comment that they had they offered interpretations, says Rashi, but they were not. Pharaoh didn't, didn't see them as beneficial. Namely, you will give birth to seven children and seven children will die. Okay, so net net, you, you have zero, basically. It doesn't benefit, it doesn't benefit the, um, the uh, it doesn't benefit Paro. So what benefits Paro will be Joseph's interpretation because Joseph's interpretation will demonstrate how the first, the first part of the dream that we'll get to shortly can, is, can, can be useful to save, to save Paro when the second situation emerges. That's one point. And of course, the main point is he will demonstrate to Paro how Paro can take control of the country, which is why in the first place he has bad dreams, presumably. Something's bothering Paro. Let me just say one last point by way of introduction. What bothers him in the text is very simple. In the previous story, it may have taken place two years ago, but it's the previous narrative. In the previous narrative, he is forced to execute the man in charge of the bread. And the man in charge of the bread, you know, substitute for the word bread, say economy. And he doesn't control it because the, 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 in the baker's dream, the flower was on his head, the birds eat, eat it off his head. Unlike the bowl who places the cup in Pharaoh's palm, the baker is not giving anything to Pharaoh. It's not the yado, and as we've already seen, and we'll see again, the one, who's, the one who has it in his hands is the one who has the power. When Joseph's coat is in Mrs. Potiphar's hand, the yada, we know he's cooked. So it's the question is the baker will put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but the, the butler, but the baker, the birds eat it off his head. Pharaoh doesn't benefit from that. And therefore, presumably, that's why he has bad dreams. He has bad dreams, something's bothering him and he can't understand how to solve the problem. And Joseph gives the perfect solution. He understands what's bothering Paro and he has the perfect answer. I'll explain to you a way that at the same time, you can be a big hero and save the nation. And you can also be a hero for yourself and stuff your pockets with all kinds of things. You all the money of the people and all of their property and all of their land and all of their cows, etc. At the same time, you will be the one who will deliver Egypt from a terrible a potential famine and a terrible famine, and you'll have a way to do it. It's a complete win-win for Pharaoh. But of course, he likes Joseph very much, because Joseph's interpretation is very much poter with Pharaoh, as we'll see. Okay, anybody else for comments here? Um, Richard Shore. Yes, Richard. So I, I just wanted to point to uh, one word that uh, supports your uh, interpretation of the Sarah Mashkim's behavior. It's not just lo zachar, but it's vayishkachehu. Right. He actively suppressed Yosef. That right. He made a, right. he made, a yes. made a decision not to do it. That's right. And probably for the reason that we said. Yeah, for exactly those reasons. It doesn't benefit him. Yeah. You know, the idea of 
gratitude, the idea of someone helped you out once that you maybe owe them something or it's the right thing to do. That's a notion that's completely foreign to the Saramashkin. It's foreign to Mitzrayim. That, that's not the way they function. It's what works for me today, but later on it actually helps them. Okay, why not mention it, you know? Why not mention it? Uh, <coughs> it's that Rashi made the comment, Rashi, according to Medrash, Rishami Tanu Nar and there was in jail with us a young man, a foreigner, right, and a slave. As Rashi comments, saying the Medrash, cursed are the wicked. Even when they do you a favor, <laughs> you have to put Joseph down. There was this low life in jail. But you know what? You can interpret dreams. So uh, it's all about, of course, oh, what they're getting. It's all about the Saramashki. But when it's not going to help him, he even suppresses it by Yishkocheyu, which is the last word of chapter 40. Okay, so now we can continue with our story, chapter 41. Can I, can yes. I ask you one more question? Um, it's always bothered me that um, Pasuk Yud Gimel and Pasuk Yud Tet in Perak Mem are so similar. Um, when he speaks to uh, the Sar Hamashkim and he tells him what's going to happen, and when he speaks yes. to yes, does that a little cruel to you? In other words, is that what you're saying? Yes. Now I don't even know if he spoke in Hebrew, but the way the the Torah reports it, right. it's it's Sorry, almost the Shefa. same, and it off your head or lift or lift or lift off your head, basically when it comes down to it. Yes. To raise your head means to give you a position of importance, but to remove your head means to execute you. And yes. these two words are the same. I presume that what it has to do is it, the Torah wants to reinforce the idea that Joseph's genius in this case is his ability to distinguish the, 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 the two different people. Of course, on the surface, when you read the when you start reading chapter 40, what it sounds like is that the two of them together plotted or did something wrong against the king. They sinned against the king in some way. It sounds like together. Anybody who reads it would assume the two of them together. And even when the Saramashkim speaks, Paro got angry against his servants. It sounds like it wasn't just one day the wine was spoiled or the, or the bread was, was burnt. It sounds like there's much more to it than that, especially if we assume that they are people of great significance in the government. It's the Saramashi, the Saraopim, Saratabakim. The Saratabakim has a jail in his house. So the point is, I think it's a way to reinforce in chapter 40, two people come, they come together, they're there for similar reasons. They have dreams on the same night. The dreams are somewhat similar. And the genius of Joseph is his ability to distinguish the two. They're different. Unlike the big ton and Teresh in the book of Esther, they're there together. But over here, there's a difference. And it sets up chapter 41, because in chapter 41, one of the questions with Pharaoh's dreams is going to be, is it one dream or two dreams? It would appear that the wise men and the magicians think it's two dreams. But what Yosef says, at least in chapter 41, is it's one dream. That's very central to his interpretation. So in order to reinforce that it's similar in chapter 40, the Torah uses the same language for both. It's my take on it. It's a good, it's a good observation. Okay, let us now continue with chapter 41, Mikates. This is a long chapter. We're obviously not going to finish it all now, but let's begin. 
So now we have more dreams. Mikesh Natayim Yomim, the Rashbam points out that when Fish Natayim Yomim, it means two full years. So there were two full years. It means that Joseph is in jail for two full years. He might have been in jail more than two full years, but Mikesh Natayim Yomim, it sounds like maybe two years after the Tsar Mashim got out. Well, who knows what, what it is? But, but the point is, it's two full years. And now we have more dreams. We had, really, we had two dreams of Joseph. We have the two dreams of the Sarah Mashkim and the Sarah Ophim. And now we're going to have Pharaoh's dreams. In Pharaoh's dreams, he's standing by the Nile. Now, the word Yor, which appears in many places in the Bible, but Al Hayyar, the, the Yor, is clearly the main river of Egypt, which is the Nile, obviously. So he's standing by the main body of water, Hayyar. But the word Yor is a very interesting word. The Ramban in his commentary suggests that the word yar is related to the word or, light. It talks about the rain is somehow the light falling from heaven. He has a verse in Eov to that effect. But let's, let's just bear that in mind that the word yar, which clearly refers to the Nile, but perhaps a suggestion in the Chumash that it's also related to the word or. That, that is an interesting suggestion of the Ramban, and we should keep it in the back of our heads, because it may come up on more than one occasion. See how the Chumash plays with this idea. So in the dream, he's standing by the Nile. And now, walking out of the Nile, now you remember that the Nile in Egypt is the, basically the source of the economy, because Egypt doesn't, unlike the land of Israel, it doesn't really depend on the rain. The Nile, which is the biggest river in the world, there's typically water in the Nile. It's under only the most unusual circumstances that Egypt would have a famine, which is why in the Torah, when there's a famine, you go down to Egypt. Because, right, Abraham went down to Egypt. It sounds like Isaac was on the way down to Egypt. This week's Barsha, God stops him. Because there's water there. It's not like the land of Canaan, where it's not always water. It depends on the rain, not in Egypt. So, the economy is rooted in the, uh, in, in the Nile. And out of the Nile step seven cows. So they're healthy cows, pretty cows, healthy cows. And they and they uh, grazed. According to most of the commentaries, is a place of grass. Maybe various types of grass. Ramban suggests maybe it's more than one type. Probably by the side of the river. That's how Rashi understands, that's how the Rabban understands it and the Rashbam, etc. So they're standing there, but often. And now it's seven additional cows. They follow them. They look bad. And they're thin. And they stand next to the first set of seven. So in this dream, which is rather striking, the seven lean cows swallow up the seven healthy cows. That's all it says over here. At which point Paro wakes up from this dream. Maybe he sees it as a nightmare. That's the dream. And now, he goes back to sleep. He goes back to sleep. And he has another dream. There's another dream. Um, and Vinei Sheva Shibolim, Alot Bekone Echad Briot Vitovot. 
So here in this second dream, which is parallel to the first dream, there were seven uh, ears of grain, solid and healthy, growing on a stalk. And then, and afterwards, there are seven more sheaves, which are thin, blasted by the east wind. They, they, they sprout up after them. And the seven uh, lean or gaunt stalks swallow up the healthy and the, and the full stalks. And Pharaoh awoke and behold a dream. By the way, notice is the, the language in, by the way, the language in the Joseph narrative, I must say this, is unlike is just the language and the way the stories are told in detail is very different from the rest of Genesis. It has a completely different feel to it. Maybe we'll come back to this point. What to make of it is a good question. It has a different feel to it. Now here's a word that appears many, many times in the Joseph story in these chapters. The word is hine, many times. Hine, right? Hine in Hayar, Hine Shemaprod Achirot, right? And later on, Hine Shemashibolim, Hine Shemashibolim Dakotu Stupot, right? Vayikatz Paro, Hine Haro. So the word Hine will appear over and over again, and often the word Hine appears in, in, in dream stories. Hine carries with it a sense often of the unexpected, the unusual, unexpected. So these are the dreams of Pharaoh. And they are rather striking dreams. And one of the questions when you read it, is it one dream or two? It's a very good question. From one perspective, it's two dreams because it says he woke up the first time. And often you have a dream, you can wake up from a bad dream, go back to sleep. Usually it's not the case you have the same dream. Usually you have a different dream or no dream or whatever it is. But in this particular case, he wakes up and the second dream is very similar to the first dream. So now the question is, is it one or is it two? That's a very important question. So it's, let's just read it. We'll see a couple more verses. In the morning, is a word that does not appear that often. Here they, my translation says his spirit was agitated. It's a good, good enough translation as any. He's very bothered. He summons for the Khartoumim, for the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. Notice the second half of this verse. Notice the, the, the right? Pharaoh told him his dream, singular. But none could interpret them. So Pharaoh presenting it as one dream, but they couldn't interpret them. Apparently they considered the two dreams to be two separate dreams. So that's the question. Is it one dream or is it two? Joseph will make a big deal out of the fact in this chapter that it's one dream. It is clear, however, in the Chumash to be understood in addition as two dreams, and we'll get to that. But before I mention all that, we'll get to it today and later, but I did want to mention one thing I saw in the Ramban, which I thought was very interesting. The Ramban thinks that fundamentally it's one dream. It's 
one dream with two parts because he goes back to sleep. But the Ramban thinks that the first dream is about the cows, the healthy cows, the lean cows, etc. And the second is about the sheep. So the Ramban's understanding of the dreams is that fundamentally they're along the same line. The cows, the Ramban suggests, cows were used in the ancient world often for, uh, typically, for uh, working in the field, for plowing. What we call Hebrew Harish. And the second part of the dream, the stalks, that's what you, that, that's what you reap. That's, that's Kotsir. Harish v'kotsir. Term Harish v'kotsir. V'kotsir v'harish v'kotsir tishbot, the Torah said on Shabbat. You should refrain from working Harish and Kotsir. Harish being the first act you do towards gathering in the crop and the harvesting of the crop, the reaping is the last thing. So there's Harish v'kotsir. That's how the Ramban understands the cows and the stalks. Basically, it's one thing. It's the production of it's food production, which begins with the plowing and concludes with the reaping. That's the Ramban. Having said that, so fundamentally, it's one idea the Ramban thinks. On the other hand, it came in two different stages because he had one dream, went back to sleep, and the second dream was after he had gone back to sleep a second time. So uh, in any event, the, it's, it's, the Ramban's point, whether it's true or not, I couldn't say, but the Ramban's point speaks to what I mentioned before, namely, why does Paro have bad dreams? Like we ask in the Megillah, I ask, why can't Achashverosh sleep at night? We can't sleep at night in chapter six because he's bothered by something. And what bothers these people typically is there's someone else who may be angry in on, on me and maybe on my queen and trying to get power. Why is this queen inviting this guy to meet with me as an equal on two occasions? That's what keeps kings up at night, can't sleep. He's got to find the answer. He's got to go through the record book. What do we know about Haman? Nothing. What do we know about Haman's enemy, Mordechai? Plenty. It's written down in the books. So he accidentally, but not accidentally, finds it. He's looking for it. So that's the point over here. The point over here, as I mentioned earlier, was in the previous chapter, chapter 40, ends with the execution of the baker, the chief baker. Execution of the chief, chief baker, man in charge of the lechem, right? Means that Paro is not in control of the lechem. And here we come to a very important point about Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. And the reason Joseph can interpret Paro's dreams very simply and very easily is because Joseph had exactly the same dreams. He was 17 years old. Remember his first dream. We're standing in a field. We're gathering in the, the wheat. And your sheaves, we're gathering in the sheaves, and your sheaves bow down to my sheaf. He didn't say, you bow down to me. He said, your sheaf bows down to my sheaf. Because what Joseph understands from day one, even as a kid, he understood this. That the person who controls all the sheaves is the person to whom you have to bow down, which of course is a wonderful in, uh, introduction to the story of Joseph and his brothers. Why do they bow down to Joseph at first, not knowing it's Joseph? They bow down to Joseph because he has all the food. If you want the food, you have to acknowledge the man in charge of the food. So the point is that the lechem, being in charge of the lechem is the key to power. Because if you have all the lechem, 
you can do what Joseph does. You can charge an exorbitant price. So that after one year, and you know it's going to be a seven-year famine. After one year, the Torah will tell us later in chapter 47, the people come to Joseph for food. And after one year, they say to Joseph, we have no more money. We have no money. So Joseph, will you take our cattle? Okay, we'll take your cattle for Pharaoh. Why not? But why don't they have money? Because he's charging a price, a high price. So there's no money. So after one year, the money is gone. Give me your cattle. After two years, the cattle is gone. Give me, give me means give Paro. Give Paro your land. And of course, as I pointed out many times, those are the two dreams of Pharaoh. The first dream is about the cattle. And the second is about the land. And the person who's going to make it in Pharaoh's court is the person who is able to deliver everything to Pharaoh. First, the money. That will run out very quickly because of the high price. And then the cattle. That's his first dream. And then the sheaves and the land. That's the second dream. The one who's going to make it in Egypt is going to be Joseph. No one is wiser than you, Joseph. You figured it all out. How I can simultaneously be a hero for saving Egypt and at the very same time can essentially expropriate almost everything they have and put it under my control. That's the genius of Joseph. Now, one, of course, can raise the question, which we can deal with, and we'll deal with it, about the, about the morality of such behavior. It's a good question. Uh, the Chumash does have a critique of Joseph, I believe. On the other hand, on the other hand, um, he does, the Egyptian people say, you have kept us alive. He does save the Egyptian people. You got to deal with Paro. You know, if you go to Paro and say, Paro, I suggest you give a very significant gift to the Egyptian people, you know, you're, you're headed back to jail, no doubt. It's, that's, it's not even, that's not in the cards. That's not the way they function. So Joseph does figure out a way to simultaneously make Paro very happy and empower Paro, give him total control. But at the same time, the people will say to Joseph, you have kept Hefi you kept us alive. I think the, the morality of it is a very good question. And one at the Chumash, it's not that we're raising the question. The Chumash raises the question, I believe, as we'll see. But it is a good question, not that we can't raise questions, but I think the question is already embedded in the Torah. The Torah is bothered to some degree by what Joseph is doing, as we'll get to later on. Anyway, that's the point. So the point is, the one who's going to make Pharaoh happy, the one who's going to give power to Pharaoh, is the one that power was going to give him a certain amount of power. Same thing was true in the house of Potiphar. Every time Joseph does something, Potiphar benefits. Every time Potiphar benefits, he gets another promotion. He's in charge of his personal valet, then he's in charge of the house, then he's in charge of the fields, then a blank check. Why? Because it's to Potiphar's benefit. He has this great guy who gives him everything. Why not? Well, when you cross Potiphar, you end up in the jail. And the same thing is true of Pharaoh. As long as you give Pharaoh what Pharaoh wants, you're the great hero. But the moment, if that moment comes, and you know what, it always comes, when suddenly you can't give power anymore, either because you don't have the ability to give more or because he already has it all. Either way, and suddenly you are in deep trouble because he doesn't need you anymore. And the moment he doesn't need you anymore, you discover what you actually are in Mitzrayim, which is a slave.
That's the story of Joseph. We'll get to it. In any event, this is what the Megillah understood very well. But it's all in the Chumash. As long as you help Paro out, you're going to be good. The other interpretation said Rashi didn't help him out. Seven children live, seven children die. Net, net, you zero. How's that help Paro? Joseph will help Paro. Because you have to understand how to use the seven good years as, power, as Joseph will explain. So let's, before I continue, if any have comments or questions, I'll take it briefly, and then we will move on um, to finish this sure. as far as we can um, go. I just want to highlight. Yes? From Devi Sondheim, who, please correct me if I get the Hebrew wrong, does the word bahu, bahu appear anywhere else? Uh, Devi, can you what give me an assist? Uh, what, does which that verse? appear anywhere else? At the beginning, ba'achu. It's I, I believe where, it appears in the Eov. I have to check that. I believe the word it's a poetic word. I think it's an Eov. I'll check it out. It's a rare word. It doesn't appear in the Chumash anyplace. The Ramban thinks it's connected to the word achva. The Ramban thinks different plants, different kinds of plants that grow together. I don't know. But it's, it's a word that appears in, I believe it's an Eov. Thank so you. I, I believe so, but I couldn't cite the verse for you right now. I'll, I'll take a look. It's an unusual word, no doubt. Okay, let us now continue. Fine. So now we're up to verse uh, number four, 14. We'll go straight now. <speaking in Hebrew> So Pharaoh calls for Joseph, the same way he had called for his magicians. Now we call exactly the same words. They rushed him out of the jail. He shaved and he changed his clothing and he stood before Paro. So a couple of comments. First, I'll make the obvious point that we all see. Once again, Joseph is changing his clothing. And not only that, if he's changing his clothing once again, but also by galach, he's also shaving, which I presume uh, is not the standard for the Jewish men, because later in the Chumash, uh, in Bayekra, for example, certain people have to shave their body hair, their, their heads, whatever it is. Those are unusual situations, change of status, Mitzorah, but the given, the presumption is that you don't have Giluach. But in Pharaoh's court, apparently, by galach, by Chalef, so he's already standing before Paro with the with different clothing that's appropriate for Paro and with the shaving that presumably is an Egyptian practice. Later on, we'll encounter other Egyptian practices in the story of Joseph, the embalming, embalming and all that. We'll get to it later on. But once again, Joseph has a new set of clothing and he stands before Paro. Um, now there's something else here which is very interesting. And of course, the Megillah picks it up and runs with it, literally. Um, and that is the verb vayiritsuhu. He sent for Joseph and they, and they rushed him out of the pit. And this is a theme in the Joseph story and a theme, central theme in the Megillah. And the question is what to make of it. Here's a guy who's languishing in jail. And he, he doesn't belong in jail. He, he, as he says, he was innocent. Okay, he's in jail. And then he tries to get out of jail. And a few days later, doesn't work because the Sarah forgets him. Doesn't remember, he forgets him, puts him out of his mind. Could be there for suddenly, two years later, what do you know? 
suddenly he's summoned by Pharaoh. And notice, now he's summoned by Pharaoh. They rush him out of the pit. So the, the way that the Chumash and the Book of Esther plays with time is very interesting. Plays with time. Um, he, he languishes, he languishes, and all of a sudden, zoom. You have this later in the Joseph story as well. When Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers, he says, I'm Joseph. You know, don't take it so badly. It's all God's plan. Hurry up and run to my father and tell him your son Joseph is alive. And he ends the speech in chapter 40. Hurry up and bring my father down. One might say to Joseph, your father's been mourning you for the last 20 years, right? Now you're in a rush. But what's interesting is that the Joseph story is that way. Nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. And all of a sudden, and the same thing is true, of course, in the, uh, in the, in the Megillah. Haman is moving very nicely, and suddenly everything goes wrong. And suddenly we have the verbs, maru, maru et haman, hurry, right, to the parties. Rush Haman to the party. Rush Haman off to the city. So the Megillah has the same kind of sense. And the idea of it, I think, perhaps, is that if one sees in the Joseph story, uh, leaving the Megillah out, but one sees in the Joseph story sort of the, sort of the hand of God, God is a plan. And when God, when God wants to act upon God's plan, all of a sudden, everything falls in place and everything is rushing to a, to a conclusion. Prior to that, nothing happens. He languishes in jail. For all Joseph knows he'll never get out. But all of a sudden, when the, when it, when it, he's rushed off to power. Paro needs him now. It's part of the same thinking. I need you now. So, you know, I need you now. When do you need me? You know, come to my office in, in, in 30 minutes. Ever had those conversations? I've had them. Suddenly, they, you, can't, you can't get a hold of them. But suddenly, they need you for something. Then there's a big rush. You know, that's the way it works. So, and now, he stands before Paro. Bayoma Paro, you're safe. I have a dream. No one could interpret my dream. I heard about you. That you can hear a dream and you'll know how to interpret it. You know, now the question is what now questions what Joseph responds to that. This is one of those verses you can say many things about. Elohim Yaneh and Shalom Paro. Now the question is how to interpret this verse. Joseph said to Paro, not me, not I. God will see to Pharaoh's welfare. There are several things to say about this verse. Before we get to the question about what is Joseph really after, I'm not sure we can come to a specific conclusion here. But what is interesting before we get there is the statement, Elohim Yaneh et Shalom Paro, what Joseph is picking up over here, and maybe the fact that he was rushed, is what the Chumash said earlier, you're talking about somebody who's very agitated. He's extreme, the dreams upset him for some reason. He doesn't understand it, but something about the dreams is very troubling to Paro. And when Joseph says, God will answer, Yaneh et Shalom Paro, God's going, to, God's going to take care of you. God's going to see to your welfare. 
That's the first thing he says. So he already understands that Joseph is very intuitive here. He understands not just about a particular dream. It's something troubling Paro. That's the first point. Now the question is, what do we make of this statement? Not me, but God will, God will solve your problem. The same thing he said in the previous chapter. He saw the baker and the butler. He said to them, they said, we had a dream. We have dreams, you know? And Joseph says, and they're very upset. The same thing. Why are you so upset? What's bothering you? We had these dreams. The dreams troubled them. And Joseph said, God can interpret dreams. Tell me your dreams. So what does that mean? God can interpret your dreams. Tell me your dreams. Not me, he says to Pharaoh. It's God. What does that mean? So I, I'll suggest two alternatives to understand that. One is, listen, I'll give it my best shot. At the end of the day, only God can truly interpret the dream. You ask me to do it, I may have some ability, but listen, at the end of the day, it's, it's God who's going to be trying to, to help you. In other words, it's it, what you can read it as a way to, Joseph is saying, listen, I'm going to try to help you, but if I can't help you, don't blame me because nobody can help you because only God, God can, or is he saying something different? It's not me, but God means in effect, no, it's not me. It's, it's not me that I have this great ability. It just, so, just so happens that God speaks through me. So from Pharaoh's perspective, he's probably thinking, I don't really care if, if, you, if it's you or it's God. I just want to understand it. But when Joseph says, it's not me, but it's God. If, if we understand it to mean it's, it's God who works through Joseph, that will have many, many, I think, implications as far as Joseph's status with Paro. And we'll, we'll get to this later on. Because remember, at the end of the day, Joseph is the Ifri. He's the, he's the outsider. He's the stranger. And we know the Egyptians don't like strangers. We already saw that with Mrs. Potiphar in the, the house. We know they eat separately. We know they're the ones from the other side. So if Paro wants to promote Joseph, he's going to have to figure out a way to promote this fellow, despite the fact that he is the Ivri. That's going to be a major problem for Paro. How do you present this, this Hebrew to the Egyptian people as, as your boss, essentially, as the, as the second in command, the vice president, as it were? So we'll see. That's an issue Paro has to deal with, and we'll see how he does that. He does it in a variety of ways. But meanwhile, Joseph's statement is very interesting, and it could be, it could be that he actually believes this, and it could even be true, actually. God doesn't work through Joseph. God is, Joseph is there in Egypt to do God's work. That's what Joseph says to his brothers on at least two occasions. It's not about me. God works through Joseph. So we'll have to, this is a question we'll have to deal with, uh, and because it's pretty basic, you know? says a lot about Joseph, and it says a lot about the story. So let's just keep that in mind as we move forward. Okay, just take a couple more verses here, and then I'll stop, take comments, questions, whatever. Um, fine. So by that we have Paro tells his dream. Beginning in verse 17, Paro tells his dream. Now, what's interesting to note about Paro's uh, telling of the dream is that the language is not identical to the language that we saw earlier in the Chumash. Some of the language is different. And secondly, what's interesting is that you have within the 
retelling of Paro's dream, statements that are not in the dream at all would appear to be Paro's take on the dream. For example, when Paro describes the um, describes the two dreams, um, I'm standing by the side of the ER, right? Uh, and the, the healthy cows come out. And in verse number 19, Okay, uses different language, but they're they're weak, they're thin, they're gaunt. Then he adds, I've never seen in all my life in the land of Egypt such sickly looking animals. Now that's that's his own statement. That's his own observation about the dream. It's not about what he saw in the dream. He described what he saw. He saw these lean, thin, gaunt or sickly cows, but he, he describes, that's one place where he adds something, or the Chumash tells us what he's thinking. And the second place is in verse number 24, after the parot eat up, the, the, the sickly ones eat up the healthy ones, verse number 21, verse 21, v'atavona el-kirbena, that we don't have. That after the lean cows eat up the healthy ones, they don't look any better than they did before. They still look lean. That's not in the original dream. That's what Paro tells. So there are two things that Paro tells Joseph in the repetition of the dreams, apart from the, some differences in language. But there are two statements that simply aren't don't appear the first time. One is what he's thinking. I haven't seen such terrible cows. And the second one, which is very striking, is that after the lean cows eat up the fat ones, they're just as lean as they were before. We have to come back to that point. Presumably it's an important point because it's something that we didn't know before about the dream and now we're told it for the first time. That's the first half. And now the second half is, um, the second half is, in verse number 22, so he repeats his dreams. I went to the Khartoumim. It doesn't mention the Chachamim. Khartoumim may be on a higher plate. They, they couldn't explain it to me. No one could tell me the dream. And that was just one more verse. What, what, what time is it now? I have a, a watch. Okay, what time is it? It is 11.05. Oh, we have time. Good. Okay. We have time. Vayomu Yosef paro chalom paro echadu et asher Elohim oseh higil v'faro. Here we have a critical point about Joseph's interpretation. His first point is the two dreams are one dream. The one dream. And now the question is, well, if the two dreams are one dream, let's leave out the Ramban. Or maybe even with the Ramban, that plowing and harvesting. But if the two dreams are one, then the question is, why do you need two dreams? If, if God is, if God is, if, 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 if the dreams are a repetition, why do you need the second dream? So Joseph's response, I think, is, that the reason there are two dreams over here, which essentially are parallel dreams, is because there's a message that God is trying to give you and God wants to make sure you get the message. And, and the reason for that 
is because A, the urgency of the message, that's point number one. But then what Joseph says later, which is very important, um, he says, he says in verse number 28, after he explains the, that the, what the seven cows, we'll come back to it, the seven years, etc. years of plenty, years of famine. Who are davar paro, God is showing Paro what is going to happen in the future. And then Joseph explains it. We'll come back to that next time. And then in verse number 2032, And the reason that the dream is, appears twice, why did God repeat the dream? The answer is, a critical point. The reason it appears twice, says Joseph, is because what God is saying to you is, what God's telling you, what God's giving you information, Paro. That means God's imploring you to do something. But the second point, and when I talk about the seven years of famine, seven years of plenty, and the seven years of famine, what God is saying by repeating the message is it's happening now. Starting today, tomorrow morning, everything's going to be different, a different economy tomorrow morning. And that leads into the next point of Joseph, which is, therefore, he says to Paro, find a wise person to govern your affairs. Find a wise person to govern your affairs, I believe, is not Joseph giving advice to Paro. What's the Hebrew slaves giving advice to Paro? He might give advice to the to the to the self-serving advice to the butler in jail. That's one thing. But was a prisoner. But you don't give advice to Paro. He's not giving advice to Paro. He's interpreting his dream. This is what it is. God speaks to you. Let's start with that. God speaks to you through me, but God's speaking to you. And God's telling you what's going to be in the future, Paro. You got to deal with it. That's why God's telling you. And not only that. God's telling you, deal with it immediately. And therefore, you've got to find someone now. There's no time for a job search for the next 18 months to find somebody. You need someone today. Now, of course, that may be completely self-serving. Okay, it is. So what? Yes, Joseph is angling to get this job because, first of all, he would prefer not to be returned to the jail. Let's start with that. And second of all, he is eminently qualified and he is an ambitious person. He did dream as a child, the sun and moon and stars bow down to him. So he doesn't lack for ambition. And here you have a chance to be an important person in the court of Pharaoh. How important, even Joseph probably didn't see that much. But this is the point. The advice he gives to Paro, in my opinion, is not simply advice. It's interpretation. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a function of the fact that God is trying to get this message through. It's very It's got it now. You got to hear this now. I'll say it once and I'll say it again. Says Joseph, therefore, God is telling you, you must choose someone immediately. And Joseph then lays out what this person is going to do. And that will pick up next week. Because what the person is going to do, essentially, is to make Paro all-powerful, and to remove the problem that existed with the Sar Hofi, with the chief baker. 
Namely, the chief baker wasn't, wasn't putting any bread on, on Paro's table. Says Joseph, but I know how to put a lot of bread on your table. I know how to give you utter and complete control of Mitzrayim. It's very simple. He says it makes it very, and he uses the key word in the Joseph story we've come across. Everything should be, during the years of plenty, you're going to ration off a lot of the food, place it in store cities, Tachat Yad Paro, under the Yad of Paro. Remember, we've seen Yad in the Joseph story throughout. The one who has the Yad, who has the upper hand, who has control, is the one that has power. Poti put everything into Joseph's hand, but then he put his coat into her hand, and he finds himself gone. Then in jail, it's in Joseph's hand again. The Sarah Mashkin places the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph knows how to put Egypt into Pharaoh's hand. It's very simple. Years of plenty, tremendous plenty. Take most of the crop under your control. And then when the famine comes to Egypt and beyond, nobody has food. Only one person has food. Under lock and key. Store, stored, guarded Shamaru with his guards, armed guards, guarding Pharaoh's food. Whoever wants food has only one place to go, to Paro. And therefore, you can charge whatever you want and you can take whatever you want because the alternative is utter starvation. That's Joseph's advice. Of course, when Paro hears this, and my argument is they understand each other perfectly well. And of course, the one who is able to hand over to Paro, literally put it into Paro's hand, is the one that Paro will favor and give him uh, a lot of control. And I'll conclude with simply reading, we'll go back to this next week, but I'll simply read two verses. Paro is very taken with Joseph. And of course, he wants Joseph to take the job. And the, the Torah says that later on, so Pharaoh took the ring on his own hand, took off his ring, the tabat of the king, the Megillah plays with the tabat of the king, the seal of the king, right? He takes the ring off his own hand and he puts it on Joseph's hand. Now, he makes the statement to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and only I am above you. So he makes it very clear to Paro, to Joseph, exactly where Joseph stands. You have this, you're the second, you're the Mishnah. But it is striking that Paro gives Joseph his ring. One might think if you're Joseph, one might be misled into thinking that you are more powerful than Paro. He gave me his ring. And in fact, we have reason to believe that at some point Joseph actually thought that a grievous mistake, but but the point is, given the fact that we've encountered the word Yad over and over again, as the one who has the power and the control, it's very striking that Paro took the ring off his finger and placed it on Joseph's hand. But of course, at the end of the day, the food, Joseph may dole out the food, but the food is Tachad Yad Paro, Ocho Be'arim Vishamaro. We have over here a most interesting uh, situation, which I think we have to talk about that and about, you know, the, the Torah is bothered by this. There's no question about it. And it's something really to think about. Uh, more, more broadly, I think, you know, when, you know, more broadly, I, I, flew, I flew back from Israel this morning. I got back about five, five o'clock in the morning, whatever. Um, 
sat next to this guy, we'll give the whole story, but he had these magazines with him. And I, uh, sort of out of the Haredi world, I was, so I read a couple of things. They had a very long article about this guy, Kastner. You know about Kastner during the war, cooperated with the Nazis. He also saved the Kastner train. And this article is a long article about uh, Kastner. It took a very dim view, a negative view of Kastner. But the truth of the matter is, Kastner is an extreme case. And I, I don't, I reserve, personally reserve judgment, I don't know. But I think it raises in a very striking way and a very important question that the Joseph story raises, which is when you cooperate in life, you often cooperate with, with bad people. And you do that because you need to do it at the time. I mean, the United States was on the same side as uh, Joseph Stalin in the Second World War. Can't get much worse, you know, but the other guy was even worse. So the point is, the Joseph story raises that interesting question. You want to do good, you want to save the people, you want to give them food. Maybe the only way to do it is to give the Pharaoh the ultimate power. And at the end of the day, when you give someone power and he has 98% power, he typically wants to get 99 or 100%. The, the, the Jews are all that's left, basically, once he gives power, all the power. And the Chumash is well aware of this, as we'll see. So I think something to think about as we proceed through the Joseph Story. I'll stop at this point. Very last comments or questions. You have a couple um, of minutes. All right. I am going. I just want to highlight a few questions from that came up in chat, and then open up the floor. Um, Justin Hornstein points out um, that the Egyptian hierarchy shaved body hair largely to move remove lice, and that he says I think Joseph's shaving might have been utilitarian. Could be. Um, it may be utilitarian, but the point is the Chumash goes out of its way to mention it. And it mentions it in the context of changing clothing. The point is, and this is a very important point, actually. I'll come back to this point. Can't do it all. My point about Joseph is, in regarding to the shaving, when you want to work for the king, if you want to work for Rachashverosh, okay? You want to work for Pharaoh. You can't be a Jew working for Pharaoh. You got to be an Egyptian working for Pharaoh. Joseph will end up marrying the daughter of an Egyptian priest. He will change his name. He's not Joe anymore, right? He's Tzavdat Paner, which is clearly Tzavdat Paner, leaving the drushes out of it. Baal Tzavdat is an Egyptian god. He's not Joseph. He's some other name, an Egyptian name. He's got an Egyptian wife, and she's the daughter of a priest. Okay, and he's Egyptian clothing, and he travels in the in the, in the chariot, right? The Rechev. Rechev is a symbol of, of Egypt. You can't, and his, and his father was name is Potiphera. Potiphera, same name as Potiphar, right? The point is, it's not Potiphar, but the point is, you can't if you're going to work for Pharaoh in a high post, you can't be a Jew. That that's the point of the Chumash, and one in one way or another. You, you're gonna, you, he demands that you be the Egyptian. It's a demand, it's not a choice. Yeah, you can go, go back to jail, that's possible. But if you wanna work with, with Paro on that level, there's no way to avoid it. So the shaving is important. Doesn't matter why they do it, actually that's irrelevant. But what's relevant is that when he comes before Paro, he's no longer just Joseph the Jew. There's no toilet pasim. He's gonna dress the way you dress in the court of Paro if he wants to stay there. He could go back to, uh, to, to oblivion, but he doesn't want to go back to oblivion. And that's the point. And we'll, we'll get to this point. It's a very deep point. 
And the Megillah understood it very well. It's the same thing in the Megillah. Mm. One thing, if you, you have to bow down to Haman. If you're living in Shushan, you could have that. Only people in the gate have to bow down to Haman. But Mordechai put himself in the gate. You're in the gate, you have no choice. You can, don't call, he has to call attention to himself, but if they find out, you're in trouble. Because that, the closer you are to the king, the more the king demands. Well, what else, what other comments do you have here? Um, I just have one more comment, and then Jerome. Um, Niva said, any significance to Vayipayim, having the shorsh of Pa'am, time? Yes, there is, well, I'll talk about that maybe next week or two weeks. I believe there is a significance. All right, uh, Jerome. Yeah, um, I haven't worked it all out, but the, the Joseph story has some very unique features. To, I mentioned in the beginning, this, this, the Joseph story sounds different than the rest of, of, of Rachel's. There's certain features in the Joseph story, that things that appear, I don't fully understand it myself, but I'm sensitive to it. There's certain things that appear over and over again, they're very curious. Now, in that context, I'll talk about Tipai and Rucha, I'll talk about that. What else? Yeah, uh, uh, David, does Joseph really need to hear Pharaoh's dreams in order to say what he what he subsequently says. He doesn't even need to hear the dreams. You know, I, I, I compare the book of the beginning of the book of Daniel, where Daniel gives an explanation without hearing the dreams. That's true. That is unusual in the book of Nexus case. I'm not going to tell you my dream, he says. That's unusual. But the book of Rashid has, I mean, the dreams tell us, I mean, look, the dreams tell us. What what Paul is thinking about in general, which is not a surprise, but as I intimated, it also is a blueprint for what's going to happen later. Themes of the cows and the land are exactly what Joseph's going to deliver to Paro later. And my claim is that the fix is in from the very beginning. That those are the conditions under which Joseph gets the job. He gets the job because Paro understands this is a bright guy who's going to be able to do what I want to do. It's my dreams, right? That's the point. Something is bothering. God will solve you. Shalom Paro. He's agitated. And that's what Joseph picks up. It's very intuitive. Joseph picks up. Something's bothering this guy. And the one who's going to succeed is the one who deals with his anxiety. And what is the anxiety coming out of? I claim it's coming out of his lack of control. It's coming out of the fact that the Sarah Ophim has just been executed. It's a lack of control. Kings want control. And the one who's going to figure out a way to give him control will succeed. And the genius of Joseph is to figure out in a way that also benefits the, the nation. It doesn't not benefit the nation. It comes at a cost, but it does benefit the people. They, otherwise, they can't survive. He has this plan, and he understood the economics when he was 17 years old. Because that's his first, his own dream. That's my point. But we'll get to all these things. There's a lot of, it's a complicated story. There's all kinds of stuff. Okay, I think I'll stop at this point then. Can I read something? Yes. Uh, I, sorry, I do need to cut off the stream as we have a class starting up in about 10 minutes okay. and I don't want to run things over too much. Well, this, what, what, so, I'm sorry, sorry. I just wanted to say that maybe Yosef's story is different even linguistically because it's the first like Egyptian story. That is certainly a possibility. But we'll have to think about why. I'm, I'm not sure about why. And I'm not even 100% understanding what. Mm -hmm. But I have an intuition about it. I want to point out a couple of things about the Joseph story that strike me as unique, actually. I don't think it appears elsewhere in, in Breshi. It's a very, very complicated story. It's the, but we'll, we'll, we'll deal with this ne next week, two weeks, etc. 
as we go through Breshit. The goal is to finish Breshit this year. That's the goal. So thank you. Now. Okay, I'll stop at this point. Very interesting. All right. Thank you, everyone. We have thank you so much, Todoro. Okay. We have a class starting up in 10 minutes on the topic of priests in poverty, a one-off class with Miss Isabel Bard, a on the topic of how the Kohen gets a portion of his wealth consumed by the rest of the Jews, but no land of his own. In this class, we'll learn texts about priesthood and wealth. If you want to join us for this class or for any other classes this month, please sign up at drisha.org slash classes. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Right. Thank you, everyone. Have a good day.